0: It's the one thing everyone asks about season one of the deal. What about Stuxnet? Yeah, what about it? I've always thought Stuxnet was a sideshow, but a lot of people disagree. So here we go. Stuxnet is a computer virus unleashed by the United States and Israel against the Iranian nuclear program about a decade ago. Ultimately, Stuxnet destroyed about 1,000 centrifuges that were enriching uranium at Natanz. Just to remind you, uranium is a mineral. You mine it right out of the ground. It is also basically harmless in that form. If you want to make a bomb or fuel for most nuclear power plants, you need to enrich it. In the very first episode of season one, Corey Hinderstein compared this process of enriching uranium to your morning cup of coffee.
1: Low enriched uranium is like really weak coffee. As you enrich uranium, you're making the coffee stronger and stronger by basically removing the water, removing the less interesting part of the uranium. And so what you want to be left with is that really sludgy Café Cubano.
0: This is where centrifuges come in. You turn the uranium into a gas, put it in a centrifuge, and then spin the f- out of it. It's the exact same principle as a washing machine or a salad spinner. But a centrifuge for uranium enrichment, that spins much, much faster. The centrifuges Iran was using do about 63,000 revolutions per minute. What that means is that the edge of the centrifuge is spinning at about the speed of sound. This is a very delicate operation and it relies on specialized computer software to control the centrifuges to make sure that they are spinning at exactly the right speed. Stuxnet, Stuxnet attacked that software.
1: So, so the virus, it's essentially a digital weapon.
0: This is Kim Zetter. She wrote the book on Stuxnet. It's called Countdown to Zero Day.
1: You're talking about a digital weapon as opposed to a kinetic weapon. The computer security world hadn't really dealt with any of that before.
0: So what do you do if your enemy is building a nuclear bomb? Maybe you want to bomb them or invade. It's the mid-2000s, though, and the U.S. has already invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, so the military's a little busy. Maybe you could talk to your enemy. Eh, this is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Back then, no one is in a talking mood. At this point, we don't negotiate with evil. We defeat it. Maybe there's something in between. We can try sanctions. But the U.S. is doing that already. There are lots and lots of sanctions. Is there anything else? Something that isn't starting another war, but isn't negotiating either? Well, we could let a computer do the dirty work. What could go wrong? I'm Jeffrey Lewis, and you're listening to The Deal. If you're new here, season one tells the story of the Iran nuclear deal. Now we're bringing our story into the present, exploring President Joe Biden's options when it comes to Iran and its nuclear program. This is Episode 4, Stuxnet. You happy now? There are always eyes on Natan's. Iran's nuclear enrichment plant at Natanz has to be one of the most heavily watched places on Earth. There is a constant stream of inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency visiting the facility to safeguard it. Cameras on the inside watching when inspectors aren't present, and satellites passing overhead taking pictures. And then there are other kinds of eyes. Eyes belonging to people who might want to slip in and plant a bomb. The Iranians take a lot of care to try to keep those people out. Getting inside Natanz without permission isn't impossible. But it is very, very hard. And there is another way. You could find a zero day.
1: So a zero day is a vulnerability in software that is unknown to the maker of the software and therefore is not fixed or patched. And it's called zero-day because researchers, because they don't know about it yet, or the vendor doesn't know about it yet, they've had zero-days to actually address it and fix it. And as long as it's unknown and unfixed, that means that hackers who do know about it then can exploit it.
0: Inside an enrichment plant, there is usually a big, open space, where centrifuges spin happily at the speed of sound. The people operating the plant sit in a control room in front of computers, The software that spins the centrifuges provides real-time monitoring on how it's all going. The centrifuges need to spin at exactly the right speed. Too slow, and they don't separate the uranium properly. Too fast, and they crash with enough force to disintegrate. So it's a delicate operation overseen by a pretty sophisticated computer control system. And you don't want anyone messing with it.
1: The zero-day exploit is kind of a crowbar, that a thief uses to break into a house. There's the vulnerability in that window because there's a little crack in there that he can slip the crowbar in, pry open that window, and then jump into the house. And that's really what an exploit does. It sort of prys open that software, a little hole in the software, in order to gain entry onto um, a, a closed system. And then they have sort of the run of the house.
0: Stuxnet famously exploited four different zero days at the Natanz plant. We don't know exactly how Stuxnet got into Natanz. It could have been as easy as an unwitting employee just taking a thumb drive out of an infected computer and putting it in one of the computers there. However it got there, Stuxnet was designed to replicate itself.
1: So Stuxnet would look for Windows systems to infect, and then when it found it was on a Windows system that was also connected um, in an industrial environment then it would unleash its payload. And that payload would then get deposited onto something called a PLC, or Programmable Logic Controller.
0: A PLC is another computer that controls the equipment.
1: It can control a turbine at a power plant. It can control, you know, systems for releasing chemicals into water at a water treatment plant. And in this particular case, the PLC was controlling centrifuges that were spinning hexafluoride gas for enriching uranium The PLC is controlling how fast these centrifuges are spinning. Stuxnet would sit on that PLC silently for about two weeks, and it would collect the normal operation of that PLC. So it would collect data stating that the PLC is spinning the centrifuges at a certain speed. It would record the temperature of the centrifuges, the pressure inside the centrifuges, all of this under normal operation. It would record that data, and it would store it for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, that's when Stuxnet would begin its sabotage. It would increase the spinning of the centrifuges, or it would decrease the spinning of the centrifuges. And during that period when it was increasing the spinning or decreasing the spinning, it would take that data that it had stored during the first two weeks about the normal operation of the centrifuges, and it would feed that false data back to the plant workers who are monitoring the centrifuges. So they would see that the spinning is normal speed. They would see that the temperature is normal, that the pressure is all normal, and they wouldn't see any of the sabotage that's going on.
0: I don't know if you've seen Ocean's Eleven, but in that movie, George Clooney loops the surveillance video in the bank vault so the casino security thugs think everything's normal. He can just slink on in and do the heist. In the case of Stuxnet, the bank vault is the room with the centrifuges. And the heist is Stuxnet doing its dirty work, making everything look normal while the centrifuges actually spin out of control.
1: So Stuxnet would do its sabotage, and then it would sort of go back to normal operations after a brief period of sabotage.
0: Stuxnet took advantage of the fact that the Iranians were new at all of this. It was designed to interfere with Iran's centrifuges in such a subtle way that the Iranians would think that they had done something wrong and waste lots and lots of time trying to figure out why everything looked right, but the output was wrong. It was pretty epic trolling.
1: So the idea of Stuxnet was not to destroy, you know, thousands of centrifuges outright because that would have been very suspicious, the idea was to cause sort of incremental damage and effects over time,
0: but Stuxnet wasn't quite as discreet as the programmers initially intended. There were a couple of versions created by the United States and Israel.
1: We believe that it's the Israelis who got a little got a little overzealous with the spreading mechanism, so now it's not just infecting systems in the Iranian facility, it's spreading outside of that facility, it's spreading across Iran to other computer systems, and then it's spreading outside of Iran, to Australia, to Malaysia, to London, and then it starts causing problems in some systems.
0: Once Stuxnet was loose in the wild, it was just a matter of time before researchers figured out what it was and who made it. This became a huge news story in late 2010. It started on a single USB drive. Now it's infected millions of computers. The Most Stuxnet worm. worm. The so-called Stuxnet worm. is so a cyber weapon on a scale never seen before. And it targets the real world. The president of Iran at the time, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, actually announced that Natanz had been hacked. And U.S. officials no-commented the story with barely disguised glee. Well, the first question, I'm glad to hear they're having problems with their centrifuge machines. (laughs) This is Gary Seymour. He was President Obama's top White House official for nuclear issues, and someone I really respect. You know, the U.S. and its allies are doing everything we can to try to make sure that uh, that we complicate matters for them but i also think that their technical computer malware are, was in one sense the perfect weapon for dc's chattering class you don't have the stain from negotiating with evil on you and you don't have blood stains either
1: a lot of people who might be opposed to attacking Iran or killing a nuclear scientist they would prefer this instead you know a lot of people can argue it's it's better than killing a nuclear scientist
0: Stuxnet was supposed to be classified, but it was way too good of a story to keep secret. In short order, there were a series of leaks about the program, with anonymous Obama administration officials taking credit. One of those leaks cost a senior official his security clearance and might have landed him in prison had Obama not pardoned him. Here's the funny thing, though. I think Iran has some very significant limitations in terms of... By the time that Stuxnet broke into the press, it was over... At the very same time Gary Seymour is talking about the problems Iran is having, the Iranians had already taken everything apart at Natanz, scrubbed the malware from the system, and put it back together again. They were already back up and running, enriching uranium. You can look it up. The IAEA publishes every few months exactly how many centrifuges Iran is operating and how much low-enriched uranium it has. Reading these reports is like my job. So I went back and looked at the data to see if I could find when Stuxnet hit the Iranians. If I showed you a bar graph of the number of centrifuges and the amounts of enriched uranium, you can see exactly when the Iranians figure it out. But you have to squint. Before the Iranians knew about Stuxnet, Iran had assembled a little more than 8,000 centrifuges. Then in late 2009, that number drops by about a thousand. Either those centrifuges crashed or the Iranians took them apart as they figured out something was going on. But Iran never stopped accumulating enriched uranium. Within a few months, call it six, the Iranians were back up and running. By the time the Iran nuclear deal was signed, about five years later, Iran had almost 20,000 centrifuges. So here's the final tally. Stuxnet knocked out about 1,000 centrifuges for about six months. The Iran nuclear deal removed 15,000 centrifuges for 10 years. Millions of dollars and thousands of hours went into this program to buy six months. Sure, we didn't kill anybody, but what did we do with those six months? Did we solve the problem? Or six months later, were we in exactly the same spot? Except now we have a digital arms race. We have taken a problem we did not know how to fix and for an extra six months created a whole other problem we have no idea how to fix.
1: You know, you can drop a bomb on someone and they can't pick up the pieces of that bomb and reconstitute it and send it back you. But when you drop a digital weapon inside a computer, what you're doing is you're providing the blueprint for that attack uh, to the victim. And the victim can reverse engineer that code figure out how this works and then devise their own code to send back at you. You know, we've seen cases where like the 911 call system goes down and they say it's a software glitch or it's an overloaded system. Well, we also have examples where hackers have intentionally gone after the 911 system. I mean, anytime there's sort of a blackout, that's at least for people in the security community, that's always the first thought Was this a software glitch? Was this a mechanical failure? Was this actually the electric grid going down or was this intentional? The irony that this attack was designed to, you know, halt proliferation in one sense, and at the same time, it unleashed a whole new kind of power in warfare and a power that is much harder to control.
0: A lot of people complained that some parts of the Iran nuclear deal ended after only 10 years. Most of those people also got really excited about the six months that Stuxnet delayed the Iranians. Roger Fisher was right. We love the confrontational approach. When it comes to confrontation, we will take any success, no matter how small, as proof that we did the right thing. So Stuxnet worked for six months. Great! Do it every six months! But if we're not talking about confrontation, if we're talking about diplomacy, then nothing is ever good enough. Ten years is way too short. The Iranians will have a bomb in no time. It's kind of funny that the people who said the Iran nuclear deal was the worst deal ever also complained that it didn't last long enough. It's exactly like the old joke. The food at this restaurant is terrible. Yeah, and such small portions— Human folly is pretty amusing. Until things get out of control and the missiles start flying. That's next time on The Deal. The Deal is produced by me, Jeffrey Lewis, along with Aaron Davis, Juliette Luini, and Nikki Stein. Our original score is by Hannes Brown, who also mixes the episodes. Special thanks for this episode go to Chris Eberly, as well as Jessica Varnum, and the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and Middlebury College.